year was 1855 when a young man at the age of 17 moved to Boston to work in his uncle's shoe shop. And his uncle told him that he could come and work for him under one condition. He said, you can come work for me if you agree to come to church with me. And this young man agreed. So he went to go work with his uncle. And their first Sunday at church, he met a man by the name of Edward Kimball. Mr. Kimball was the young boy's Sunday school teacher, and he was not like any other Sunday school teacher. I mean, he was, uh, he was one of a kind. He spent hours upon hours each and every week studying to uh, prepare to teach these boys the Word of God. And on April 21st, 1855, Edward Kimball stopped by the shoe store where this young man was working and he shared Christ with him. He pleaded with this young man to give his life over to Jesus and this young man did. At the age of 17, he turned from his sin and he gave his life up and over to Jesus. And he then went on to become one of the greatest American evangelists in our nation's history. Though estimates vary, some have said close to a million people came to saving faith through his ministry. God used this man in a mighty way to advance his kingdom for his glory. Do you know what his name was? Dwight Lyman Moody. Y'all know the name D.L. Moody? Anybody? Raise your hand if you know D.L. Moody. Yeah, yeah, a lot of you in here, right? A lot of you have heard of D.L. Moody, but let me ask you this. Before coming in today, how many of you have ever heard the name Edward Kimball? Anybody? You see, though God used D.L. Moody to reach thousands, he first used Edward Kimball to reach D.L. Moody. And here's the point I want to make, and, and I don't want you to ever forget this. Listen, don't ever underestimate the value and the power and the impact of your personal ministry. Don't ever underestimate the value and the power and the impact of your personal ministry. Behind the D.L. Moody's and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon's and C.S. Lewis's and Martin Lloyd-Jones's and John MacArthur's and John Piper's and R.C. Sproul's and Matt Chandler's of the world, there are Edward Kimball's. So don't ever underestimate the value and the power and the impact of your personal ministry. That is so important for you and me to understand. You know why? Because if you're here this morning and you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you have the same calling on your life that Kimball had on his Believers, God has called for, for all of us to be witnesses for Him. He has called for all of us to be involved in personal ministry and to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit and confront people with His gospel and to urge men and women to turn from their sin and to trust in Christ alone for salvation. And only God knows what He's going to do with the one you take that message to. But get this. That encounter could be the difference spiritually in a household. 
in a neighborhood, in a future church, in a foreign land, in a worldwide ministry. There are ministers all over the world today who have fruitful, thriving ministries who came to saving faith through the personal ministry of spirit-filled people like Edward Kimball. And again, we, we all have this calling on our life to be faithful, to share and show Christ to those whom God puts in our path. And the question you need to ask yourself this morning is really simple. Whether or not you're going to be obedient to that call or not. That's the question you need to ask yourself. We've been learning in this book, the book of Acts, that those in the early church were faithful to that calling. They were faithful to the calling that had been placed upon them by the Lord Jesus. And it wasn't just the 12 apostles, by the way. We're told at the beginning of the book of Acts that there were 120 faithful followers of Christ. And Christ tells them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 to go out in the power of his Holy Spirit and make him known to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is exactly what they did. And not just the apostles, but all of Christ's disciples. And we're told that as they were faithful to do what Christ had called them to do, the church grew from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 to 10,000 and so on. And they moved out with this message didn't they we're told that they filled jerusalem with the teachings of jesus and then they moved on out from jerusalem onto judea and samaria and all across the known world and the history books also tell us that the faithful after them continued to be faithful and now the gospel's to us right We're the fruit of somebody else's ministry. And the gospel is now in our possession. And here we are today with the same calling on our lives. All of us, believers, all of us have this calling. I've said this before, but we need to be reminded of it time and time again. If you've been saved, you've been called to ministry, period. It's crystal clear. Christ's commission that he gave in Matthew 28 is not completed. It extends to us today and his teaching in Acts chapter 1 to be his witnesses. It's not just a command for me or for those in the past, but for you and for me and for all of us. And we'll see that today as we finish out Acts chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there now, Acts 9. We're going to be looking at verses 32 through 43 this morning. We are going to see today that personal ministry is powerful. And it's something that we're all called to be involved in. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, okay, Graham, if that's the case, where do I start? What does it look like for me? What do I do? How do I become involved in personal ministry? And what does it look like for me? Well, we get a wonderful picture of personal ministry and what it looks like and the keys to a fruitful personal ministry by looking to the example of the apostle Peter. But before we jump into this text, let me bring you up to speed with where we are. Throughout the book, 
Luke's been jumping around quite a bit. And the reason why is because there are a lot of things going on in ministry in the first part of the book of Acts. There are a lot of things to report. He starts with Christ's post-resurrection ministry to his 12 disciples and to his larger group of disciples. And then Christ leaves. He ascends and Luke turns his focus toward Peter at the end of Acts chapter 1 and then Acts chapter 2 and then to Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 and then in Acts chapter 4 and then later he turns his focus to Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7 and then to Philip in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 and then on to Peter and John in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. Then he turns his focus to the beginning of Saul's ministry, his conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and the beginning of Saul's ministry in Damascus and in Jerusalem. And where we left off last week was Luke told us that the, the heat was on in Jerusalem on Paul, so they send him by ship back to Tarsus for a time. And after Luke reports that, he then returns to focus on Peter, and that's where we are today. Now, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 4, Peter, for the most part, is spending the majority of his time preaching before large crowds of Jews. He preaches on Pentecost to thousands of Jews from nations all around the known world. In Acts chapter 3, he preaches before a large group of Jews in the courtyard of the temple. In Acts chapter 4, he preaches before the Sanhedrin. So he's been preaching a lot. That's been the main focus, Peter's preaching ministry. But in Acts chapter 9, we have two accounts of Peter involved in personal one-on-one ministry. Peter did not just preach before thousands, but he ministered house to house on an individual level. This is a good Example for, for people like myself in pastoral ministry and for other pastors. There are some pastors that think all that I'm required to do is this up here. And then y'all go do what I say do, right? Do what I say and, and don't require me to do it as well. And then there are others who put all of it on them. And they say, I got to do everything. And the church feels that way as well. Both of those approaches are wrong. We're to go out together and do this great work of ministry. And we see that example from the apostles and those they were discipling. We see that with Peter. Peter, though he was one of the original 12, one of the inner three with Jesus, Peter, a leader of the apostles, Peter who preached before thousands, was involved in personal ministry. Same is to be true of you. Same is to be true of me. We all, like Peter, are to be involved in personal ministry. We're to be standing strong for Christ out in the world, showing who he is by our actions, sharing about who he is and what he's accomplished for us with our words. Peter and the other disciples, they were mad at this. So what I want to do is I want to look at the personal ministry of Peter and I want you to notice several clear characteristics we learn here from Peter on how to have a fruitful personal ministry. Notice number one, look for opportunities to minister. Don't wait around for them. That's point number one. Look for opportunities to minister. Don't Wait around for them. As we said last week, there are some with a maybe later approach to ministry. They're just holding out for the, for the right area of service. They're just waiting 
for the right opportunity to come along and they're not being faithful to serve God where they are. You know what? Jesus, when he says in Matthew 28, go make disciples, you know how that word is supposed to be translated, is really translated go? As you are going. As you are going throughout your lives, you are to be on the lookout for those in need of Christ. You're to go to them. You're to confront them with the gospel. And when they come to saving faith, then you are to disciple them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, tells his followers that after they are empowered on high by the Holy Spirit, they are to go and be his witnesses and to make him known where he is not known. That could be a family member. That could be a friend. That could be a complete stranger. Toward the end of Acts chapter 9, we see that Peter was not just sitting around waiting for ministry to come to him, to land on his doorstep. We're told that he was going here and there and everywhere looking for opportunities to minister. Look at verses 32 and 33. We're told, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. Notice we see here that Peter was looking for an opportunity to minister, right? He was on the lookout and he found one. In verse 32, Luke tells us that Peter went here and there among them all. He was on the go, wasn't he? I bet Peter never hardly stood still in ministry, do you? He was just always on the go. Christ had told him in John 21 that he was going to give his life for the gospel. So Peter lived the rest of his days as if it were his last. So he's going here and there and everywhere, and he finally finds a need in Lydda. Listen, folks, as we said in the introduction, if you've been saved, you have been called to ministry. You have been saved to serve. And get this, you do not find opportunities in ministry by waiting around, but by going. Those I know waiting for the perfect opportunity to come along are still waiting for it. And those who are on the go, seeking to serve, you know what? They find ministry everywhere. There is ministry all around us. None of Christ's disciples were just sitting around, idly just sitting there, waiting for the right opportunity to come along. Instead, they were on a move. They were on the move, and they were looking for places to plug in, and they found ministry everywhere. Like I said last week, God doesn't want our service tomorrow. He doesn't. He doesn't want our service next week, next month, next year, because Scripture is clear. Tomorrow, next week, next month, next year may never come for you. He wants you to be serving Him right now today. He wants you to live for Him today and serve Him today. He wants you to be on the lookout for opportunities to minister and not waiting around for the perfect opportunity to come along. Here's the second key to fruitful, personal, Christian ministry. Number two, exalt Christ, not self. For ministry to be fruitful, those involved in that ministry must exalt the name of Christ. 
I've found in ministries where Jesus is not the focus, where people are just attending churches and a part of ministries because of a particular leader, there's not much spiritual depth with those people involved. And when that leader leaves, or or worse, if they mess up morally, they leave behind a mess instead of a fruitful and thriving ministry. But ministries where individuals direct people to Christ rather than draw attention to themselves, they tend to leave behind ministries filled with people looking to and trusting in and following hard after Jesus. Perfect example of this is John the Baptist. Our kids talked about John the Baptist this week in VBS. He had a large following. And when John the Baptist's ministry was over, many of his disciples went on to the one he was pointing toward and preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. Peter ministers in this way as well. When he gets to Aeneas, he says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And what did Aeneas do in response? We're told immediately. He got up. And he made his bed. Why did he make up his bed? No need to leave it unmade anymore, right? No more lying around for Aeneas. After eight years of being paralyzed, he was completely healed. And notice, Peter takes no credit whatsoever for this miracle in any way. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. And notice what happened as a result, verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to Peter. Is that who they turned to? What does it say? They turned to the Lord. Though Peter was a vessel that God used to reach and heal Aeneas, he directs people to the Lord Jesus. And when the residents saw this, they saw this wonderful miracle, they turned to the Lord. Folks, we ought to minister in this way. In such a way that when people look to us and when they look to our ministry, they immediately look to Jesus because we're directing them there. We're directing them to the one who's made all the difference in our life. That should be the message that comes out of our mouth and the focus of our ministry. If you're a believer and not involved in ministry, you must first get involved in ministry, right? And then you should be ministering in such a way where people, after they have an encounter with you, they're turning to Jesus. Like I said early on in in this series, our lives need to be like a flashing arrow pointing to Christ. That needs to be our ministry. Your goal needs to be to show and share about Jesus with others in hopes that they turn to and they look to and they trust in and they follow Him. Peter ministered in this way, and the fruit that came from his ministry was great. Look at verse 35 again. How many of the residents turned to the Lord? What does it say in verse 35? How many? All. Can you imagine that? All the residents? I think all means all here. I think that in the Greek it means all. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Like I said in the introduction, there is value, there is power in personal ministry. Though thousands came to Christ, when Peter preached Christ to thousands, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord after Peter ministered to this one individual named Aeneas. 
as a result of Peter's ministry to one man, a whole city, a whole area turned to Jesus. So the keys to fruitful personal ministry, look around for opportunities to minister instead of waiting around for them. Exalt Christ instead of self. Here's the third key to a fruitful ministry from this text. Number three, be accessible, not unavailable. Be accessible, not unavailable. A key to effective, fruitful ministry is to be available when God calls you and when God's people need you. Peter was. Though there was great work to be done in Lydda, Peter gets called away to go elsewhere. Look at verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Now Dorcas, minus her name, bless her heart, was one great lady. She was. If I was to ever preach a a sermon on her, I think my title would be Ladies Honor God by Being a Dorcas. What do you think? Does that go good? Should I use that? Should I mark that one down? No, okay. I'm I'm getting shakes now. All right. Mark that out. Though her, le- her name leaves much to be desired, her life and her legacy was truly great. We're told she was a disciple of the Lord Jesus. We're told she was full of good works. We're told she was full of acts of charity. But notice what happens in verse 37. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. The people in Joppa were sick with grief when Dorcas died. It it seems as if she might have died all of the sudden without, with you know, unexpected, very quickly. And, And notice they don't bury her right away. Now that's very, very unusual. Normally, the Jews wanted to get the deceased buried as quickly as possible because there were all these rules about how dead bodies defiled everything they came in contact with, but they didn't want to do that with Dorcas right away. We're told they washed her We're told they laid her in an upper room. They were not ready to say their goodbyes. They wanted this dear lady back. And they heard that Peter was nearby in Lydda. They probably heard about how God had used him to heal Aeneas. So they sent for him. They pleaded with him to come to them quickly. And how does Peter respond? Did he say, you guys know I'm an apostle? I mean, I got a lot of stuff to do. I can't be running all over everywhere. Is that how he responded? Or or did he say, you know what? I got to head up this ministry here. There's a lot of ministry going on. I got to stay here to make sure everybody does what I say and keeps things in place. Did he say, you know what? I'm sick of this personal one-on-one stuff. I'm going back to preach to thousands. Did he say that? No, he didn't say anything. We're just told what he did. Actions speak louder than words, right? Look at verse 39. Peter rose and went with them get this you know why peter had a fruitful ministry because he made time for people that's why folks hear me when i say this you will miss out on great joys to be had in ministry if you don't make time for people that's vital that's vital parents you have little ones at home who are begging for your time. 
And there are great opportunities to be had for Christ in those moments. And great joys to be experienced if you'll just take a break from your work. Turn off the TV. Spend quality time with them. Husbands and wives, great opportunities for Christ together. God gives us those each and every day. We need to make them count for the kingdom. Same goes for pastors with their people. Peter made time for people. He was available and he was used in a mighty way by God. He was also needy. Peter was dependent on God, not independent in ministry. That's the next key, the next point. Be needy, not independent. Look at the middle of verse 39. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Notice how sick with grief they are because Dorcas had died. We, we learn in the previous verse that she was an amazing woman, right? A great disciple of the Lord Jesus, full of good works, full of great acts of charity. And there were people filled in that room who had all been directly affected by her in ministry. What an impact she had. What a legacy she left. And they're beside themselves. They're sick with grief. And I'm sure it was hard to even concentrate with all the commotion going on in that room. It was hard for Peter to concentrate. So Peter, in typical Peter fashion, he takes charge here. And look at what he does in verse 40. Peter put them all outside like that. Peter's just like, y'all got to get out of here. There's just, I can't focus. Y'all got to go outside and let God do his thing. And notice what happens next. We're told he knelt down and prayed. Aren't you glad it says that? Aren't you glad it doesn't say Peter knelt down? He said, Tabitha, arise. Before he did that, he prayed. You know, it would have been real easy for Peter for all that God had used him to do and all that God had done in and through him to begin to think, you know what? I got this one, God. I got this one. You go handle matters elsewhere and let me raise this woman from the dead. But he didn't do that. Peter kept the proper perspective. He knew that it was God who was at work in and through him. And he trusted in him to heal. And when God did heal, Peter directed those looking on and the ones on the receiving end of that miracle to the Lord. Peter did not give one thought to himself and to his own abilities. He knew that if God were not in it, he would be powerless. Is that your mentality in life and in your ministries? heard a great story recently about five young men who were in London. <clears throat> they were Christians, and they had heard of a great preacher there by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Though they had never seen him before, they had heard great things about him, so they wanted to go hear him preach. And so they showed up for the evening service very, very early so they, they could get a good seat. But the doors were still locked. So they waited outside for a while, and after a while, this man approached and he asked these young men if they would like to go inside and if they would like to see the heating apparatus of this church. And the guys kind of looked at each other and thought, well, not really, you know, but they didn't want to be mean, so they're like, sure. So this man took them inside the church and he took them downstairs to this large room filled with 700 people on their knees praying for the evening service. 
This man, who they later found out was Spurgeon, said, this, my young brothers, is the heating apparatus of this church. What a perspective. He got it. Folks, to be fruitful in ministry, we've got to have this perspective. To be fruitful in ministry, we must go forward in ministry on our knees in need. We must see our need. We must be dependent upon God to do the work in and through us. There's no better example of this than Jesus. Before raising Lazarus, we're told he prayed. Before he went to the cross, where did he go? He went to Gethsemane, didn't he? And he's divine. But in his humanity, we're told he took on need. And he is our great example of how we are to respond to ministry. And Peter responded properly as well. And he prayed, and then he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Folks, that right there is a miracle. That is a miracle right there. Can you imagine the joy that was felt in that place when those people who had sent for Peter entered back into this room and this beloved woman was alive once again? Look at verse 41. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. I bet that was a wonderful time of rejoicing with Peter, don't you? And with the saints and with the widows. But notice verse 42, we learn the real reason why this great work was done. It was not done ultimately for those in Joppa, not done ultimately for Dorcas's benefit, though they did benefit, but it was done ultimately for what happened next. Look at verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Once again, we're reminded, like we are all throughout the book of Acts, the purpose of miracles. They are done to highlight God's messenger and to highlight, to to shed light upon his message and to bring sinners in need to repentance and faith. God has evangelism in mind here. He has advancing his kingdom in mind here. And, And that's what happens. This miracle is known all over Joppa and many Many believed in the Lord. One final point we see here for effective and fruitful personal ministry. Notice that Peter ministered without prejudice. He did not discriminate. Minister without prejudice. Do not discriminate. Though verse 43 is really a side note in this passage This is a point that Luke makes all throughout the first part of the book of Acts. He makes this point with Philip when he goes to minister to the Samaritans, with Peter and John when when they go and minister to the Samaritans. He makes that point here in chapter 9. He makes that point in Acts chapter 10 when God comes to Peter and, and prepares him for this great work of ministry to the Gentiles. He makes that point again at the end of Acts chapter 10 when Peter goes and ministers to the Gentiles. He makes that point in Acts chapter 11 when Peter returns to Jerusalem to stand for the ministry that he did in Caesarea amongst the Gentiles, to stand for them. He makes that point again in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council, right? It's made all throughout. 
And we see it here. Though God had to do a great work in Peter to break down quite a few barriers in Peter's life, Peter got to the point where he ministered without prejudice. He got to the point where he did not discriminate in ministry. Look at verse 43. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. We're told in verse 43, while Peter was in Joppa, he stayed with a man named Simon who was a tanner. A tanner was someone who worked with animal hides. And because they did, they had to come in contact with a lot of dead animals, which is why many of the Jews would often not even associate with them because they viewed them to be ceremonially unclean. Notice, Peter not only associated with him, he stayed with them for many days. Though he would still have more lessons to learn when ministering to Gentiles in Acts 10, we see Peter's overcome a lot, right? We see that when he goes and ministers to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. We see that in Acts 9. We see that in Acts 10 and in 11 and at the Jerusalem Council when he takes a stand for Gentiles in Acts chapter 15. You know, there are a lot of unnecessary barriers in place today because of prejudices in ministry. Folks, I think a lot of us, if not all of us, would agree in here God does not discriminate when it comes to race and when it comes to socioeconomic status. We're told that clearly. In Acts chapter 10, Romans 2, James 2, God does not show favoritism. Jesus also exampled this for us, right? He ministered to Samaritans. He ministered to Gentiles, tax collectors, and sinners. If this is true of God and exampled by Jesus, why should we be any different? It's a good question, right? Listen, to to minister effectively, you've got to let those prejudices that you have based upon race and social status die. And believers, hear me when I say this. If we begin to minister in this way, if we begin to do personal ministry in this way, our churches will make an impact for the kingdom, for Christ. Well, let me end with this. I want to end today just carrying this point over into the conclusion. Listen, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done in the past. If you're not made right with God, if you're not trusting in Him for your salvation, listen, you can be made right with God right here, right now, today, by turning from that life of sin and by turning your life up and over to the Lord Jesus and trust in him for your salvation. Scripture is crystal clear that we come into this life set against God. God is a righteous God. He has created us to live in relationship with him, but we have rejected that, and we have chosen to go at life on our own, apart from and opposed to him. And Scripture is crystal clear that because God is a righteous God, he is set against sin. And because he is set against sin, he is necessarily set against sinners. But here's the great news. Though we are enemies of God, as it says, in our sin, and though God requires perfection, and though we've missed that by a million miles and more, Scripture is clear that God provides for us what He requires of us. And He does it in and through His Son, Jesus. God the Son, the Lord Jesus, came to earth 
took on flesh, became one of us. He lived for us. He, was, he died for us. He was raised for us so that we, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, and through faith in him, could be forgiven of sin and made right with God once again. The God who made us, the God who created us for a relationship with him. This is what God has done for us. This is the great work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And scripture is also crystal clear that this wonderful gift of salvation is available to any and everyone who would turn from their sin, turn their life over to Jesus and be saved. If you've never made that decision, listen, now's the time. Now's the time to do so. I pray you would before you leave here today. Let's pray.